FTC sues Meta to prevent it from acquiring VR fitness app Supernatural. Protocol. The 27th of July 2022. In the blog post, TikTok COO Vanessa Pappas acknowledged that researchers currently do not have easy and accurate ways to identify and assess content and trends or conduct tests of our platform. TikTok lags behind competitors in that regard. Both Meta and Twitter offer data sets for researchers. Meta, for instance, launched its ad library tool in 2019, responding to allegations of platform misuse surrounding elections. Twitter has likewise shared over 40 data sets that focus on global platform manipulation campaigns. TikTok's transparency push comes amid mounting scrutiny of its content moderation practices and ties to China. A TikTok spokesperson told Protocol that the company has been working on these changes for some time as part of our ongoing commitment to transparency and accountability. In June, BuzzFeed obtained leaked audio from internal TikTok meetings that suggested ByteDance employees in China could access American user data, despite numerous assurances that data remained siloed between the two nations. It also found that TikTok had been actively working on rerouting data pipelines to address the problem. The report renewed scrutiny of TikTok by U.S. politicians. In early July, SENS. Mark Warner and Marco Rubio urged Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Khan to launch an immediate investigation into TikTok's data processing and corporate governance practices, citing the BuzzFeed article. Previous attempts at investigating TikTok didn't get far. In 2019, SENS. Tom Cotton and Chuck Schumer urged U.S. intelligence agencies to study national security risks posed by TikTok due to the potential for a foreign influence campaigns like those carried out during the 2016 election. Former President Donald Trump attempted to force ByteDance to sell the U.S. operations of TikTok to an American company, but that order wasn't carried out under the Biden administration. The impetus for TikTok's new research tools isn't U.S. pressure, but new EU regulation, according to Gus Rossi, director of platform policy at Omidyar Network. Article 31 of the forthcoming Digital Services Act requires social media companies to give data to vetted academic researchers for assessing systemic risks. Those risks can pertain to illegal activity on the platform or any broader manipulation campaigns. It's hard to imagine that this would be happening if it weren't because the European Union imposed their mandate, Rossi told Protocol. These circumstances raise questions as to just how accessible TikTok's APIs will be, especially for US-based academics. TikTok only commits to opening access for selected researchers. It doesn't say how those researchers will be selected, nor the scope of data they'll be able to request. Update. This story was updated July 27 to include TikTok's statement. The vote likely marks the end of more than two years of debate, which stalled in recent weeks amid disagreements between the two houses of Congress and within parties. The Senate bill is now set to travel to the House and is expected to pass there, according to several D.C. insiders protocol spoke with this past week. If or when the House passes the bill, it will head to President Biden, who has signaled he supports this effort to boost U.S. chip manufacturing and plans to sign the bill. The semiconductor manufacturing-related legislation the Senate passed is a reworked version of the House's bill that strips out some of the components that bogged down passage in favor of ensuring the chip-related funding passes. Broadly, the Senate version includes roughly $52 billion in subsidies to bolster chip manufacturing in the U.S., spread over five years, and a $24 billion tax credit to support the industry. Beyond the manufacturing subsidies, the bill also adds $200 billion marked for research. 
The legislative package is a meaningful sum of money, but for the chip industry, which measures the cost of its future plans in the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, $52 billion over five years is a rounding error given the scale of investments required in this space, according to Bernstein analyst Stacy Rasgon. The funding and tax breaks will directly benefit chip manufacturers such as Intel, Global Foundries, Samsung and TSMC. The move comes at a time when most other tech companies are cutting down on office space. Twitter is reducing its office presence in San Francisco, New York and Sydney in an effort to cut costs, Bloomberg reported on Wednesday. Meta and Amazon are slowing their planned New York office expansions. Google has more than 2,000 Chicago-based employees and has reportedly been looking to expand its Chicago office presence for months. Its current office is located in the Fulton Market area of Chicago. The company brought employees back to the office in April, requiring workers to come in three days a week. Some employees were unhappy about this policy, claiming it was applied unevenly across Google. Hulu will now accept ads related to sensitive political issues, after Democrats criticized the Disney-owned platform for rejecting advertising related to abortion access and guns. The decision, first reported by Axios on Wednesday, overturns a policy at Hulu that prohibited ads about controversial content, a policy that has itself become more controversial in light of the Supreme Court's decision undoing Roe v. Wade. After a thorough review of ad policies across its linear networks and streaming platforms over the last few months, Disney is now aligning Hulu's political advertising policies to be consistent with the company's general entertainment and sports cable networks and ESPN+, Disney told Axios. Hulu will now accept candidate and issue advertisements covering a wide spectrum of policy positions, but reserves the right to request edits or alternative creative, in alignment with industry standards. Democrats, who had accused the company of censorship, applauded the decision. It's really heartening to see Hulu reverse course on this damaging policy before the midterms, said Stephanie Grasmick, CEO of Rising Tide Interactive, a digital strategy group that works with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. More than ever, digital channels are a primary source of information for voters, so it's critical that campaigns are free to message on some of the most important issues facing our country, including abortion access and gun violence prevention. And yet, Hulu's decision to open the floodgates to issue ads raises thorny questions for the platform, including whether it will offer the public any way to see how much political groups and campaigns are actually spending on those ads, whom they're targeting and what they're saying. Streaming platforms like Hulu are already held to a different standard than traditional broadcasters when it comes to political ads and don't face the same transparency and disclaimer requirements that, say, ABC, NBC and CBS do. That's been a huge source of anxiety for political spending reformers, who have called on the Federal Election Commission to update its transparency requirements for streamers at a time when campaigns are increasingly spending on connected TV ads. In the 2020 race, election-related advertisers spent more than $100 million on connected TV ads. While it's blocked ads about controversial issues more broadly, Hulu has allowed explicitly political ads in the past and has repeatedly faced criticism for how little accountability there is for the advertisers behind the ads. Now that it's allowing issue ads to run, too, Hulu runs the risk of allowing even more ads to flood the platform, with very little insight into advertisers' targets and spending. Hulu did not respond to Protocol's questions about whether it has any new transparency features planned and directed Protocol to its public statement. Hulu also isn't the only company to reverse course on its ad policies ahead of the midterms.
Earlier this year, Protocol reported that Spotify would also return to political advertising in 2022, just two years after it decided to prohibit political ads altogether. Spotify said it would only allow ads from candidates, political parties, PACs and elected officials, but it also hadn't created any public-facing tracking system for those ads. Streaming platforms are now years behind other digital ad giants, including Meta and Google, in terms of providing more transparency into political ads. In the wake of the Russian Internet Research Agency scandal in 2016, both of those companies built political ad archives that offer the public information about who is running an ad, how much they're spending, what they're saying and who they're reaching. Meta even includes issue ads in that archive. Those archives have proved critical for research into elections ads, but they've also created PR crises for the companies, crises that streaming platforms have been able to mostly dodge. There is, of course, value in Hulu allowing ads that discuss some of the most pressing issues of the moment, including abortion. That's especially true at a time when lawmakers in anti-abortion states are seeking to censor speech about abortion and when getting the word out about abortion access is becoming increasingly tricky online. It's little surprise that Democrats especially would want a change in Hulu's policies. But allowing ads about abortion necessarily means allowing anti-abortion ads, which may very well contain messaging that abortion rights advocates would consider misinformation. Without any sort of transparency system in place, those ads will now be a lot harder to find. Update. This story has been updated to include Hulu's response to protocol. Kraken is suspected of letting users in Iran and other places buy and sell digital assets, violating U.S. sanctions in place since 1979, the New York Times reported Tuesday, citing unnamed sources. The Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, which has been investigating Kraken since 2019, is expected to impose a fine against the crypto marketplace, the report said. The Times also said it has reviewed internal messages in which CEO Jesse Powell suggested being open to breaking the law if it would be beneficial to Kraken. Kraken does not comment on specific discussions with regulators, Chief Legal Officer Marco Centauri said in a statement. He also said the company has robust compliance measures and closely monitors compliance with sanctions laws and, as a general matter, reports to regulators even potential issues. The reported probe of Kraken overseas transactions highlights the growing concerns that crypto companies have been violating U.S. laws and sanctions against countries like Iran, North Korea and Russia. Earlier this month, Reuters reported that Binance, another major crypto marketplace, processed transactions by customers in Iran, violating a U.S. ban. Correction, an earlier version of this story misstated when Reuters reported on Binance's ban violation. This story was updated on July 26, 2022. The SEC publicly announced that it was charging a former Coinbase manager with insider trading last week. In a 62-page complaint, the agency also listed nine tokens as securities under the Howey test, sending shockwaves through the industry. If cryptocurrency tokens are securities, they fall under SEC enforcement, and trading platforms like Coinbase would be outside the bounds of the law. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has long suggested most cryptocurrencies are securities, though he's never set a definitive rule. Bitcoin, he has said, might be a commodity. The sex probe into Coinbase predates the insider trading charges, insiders told Bloomberg, but the investigation was not known. Coinbase shares dropped as low as 9.2% on the news, which at worst threatens the company's core business. 
We are confident that our rigorous diligence process, a process the SEC has already reviewed, keeps securities off our platform, Chief Legal Officer Paul Grewal tweeted Monday evening. In response to a request for additional comment, Coinbase directed protocol toward that tweet. The SEC and DOJ's charges of insider trading were criticized by many in crypto and by CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham as regulation by enforcement. The argument is that the industry cannot comply with the law if they do not know what those laws are, and that prosecuting entities to clarify legal gray areas will slow innovation. Others point out that prosecution is precisely what law enforcement is designed to do. Coinbase filed a petition with the SEC shortly after the insider trading charges were announced requesting that the agency propose clear rules governing the trading of digitally native securities, as well as clear guidance as to which digital assets should be regulated as securities at all. Given today's news, it looks like the agency has other plans. Correction, this story has been updated to correct the date of Paul Grewal's tweet. This story was updated July 26, 2022. The site, heat.gov, is set up to provide the public and decision makers with clear, timely and science-based information to understand and reduce the health risks of extreme heat, according to a press release. With climate change making heat waves more common and intense, there's never been a more crucial time to share information that can help decision makers put together plans to keep people safe. The website has been in the works at least since the start of the Biden administration, according to Rick Spinrad, the head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It emerged as one of the priorities of the president's National Climate Task Force and its interagency working group on extreme heat. Heat.gov is geared toward a wide range of decision makers, from companies to local governments to individuals, Spinrad told Protocol, whether it's a mom trying to decide whether it's safe for kids to play outside, or a construction foreman trying to decide if it's okay for their workers to be out on the job or a public works manager trying to figure out when road repairs can be undertaken. The data included is open access, which is designed to help community-level decision makers integrate it into their own work. The website was created by the National Integrated Heat Health Information System, which is a NOAA and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention collaboration aimed at heat resilience. Heat.gov prominently features a counter of how many people in the U.S. are living under a heat warning on any given day, more than 39 million at the time of the site's launch. It serves as a repository for existing data from across multiple agencies but also features new resources. For instance, the agencies created a heat equity mapper using NIHHIS data on urban heat islands, which also launched Tuesday and seeks to answer the question of whether certain parts of a city get hotter than others. Heat causes roughly 700 deaths per year in the U.S., making it the deadliest form of extreme weather. And it's only going to worsen with climate change. This summer, which has already seen heat waves roil every region of the U.S., could easily be the coolest for the rest of our lifetimes, Spinrad said. The impacts of extreme heat accrue disproportionately in Native American and Black communities, according to the CDC. Indeed, research has shown that neighborhoods subject to redlining, a racist zoning practice that discriminates against communities of colors, are up to 12 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than their non-redlined counterparts. Those living in the urban core or in very rural environments are also more impacted by hot weather. Given that the Biden administration wants 40% of all federal funds to benefit communities on the front lines of environmental justice, the heat equity mapper could provide a new avenue to ensure those targets are met when it comes to keeping places cool.
Other agencies that have partnered in the project also include the Environmental Protection Agency, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the Veterans Administration and the National Park Service. Heat.gov relies on the geographic information systems provider ESRI for the site's underlying technology. While the site today is a fairly standard government site, Spinrad said he could imagine added value service providers using Heat.gov's data to create an app or other specialized resource for heat data. This is reminiscent of how companies like AccuWeather have used and built upon NOAA's fundamental weather forecast in the past. The Russian war against Ukraine has upended gas prices around the world, but the pressure has been no more acute than in Europe. EU leaders have mulled a plan to cut dependence on Russian gas for months or ban its import entirely. They landed on a 2027 phase-out, but with gas proving to be a major geopolitical weapon for Russia, that timeline may speed up. The bloc agreed to voluntary cuts to gas demand of up to 15% for the winter, when demand rises for keeping homes warm. If there's a substantial risk of a shortage, that could trigger cuts sooner. There are a few exemptions for cutting demand, which were pushed by countries that do not heavily rely on Russian methane gas such as Spain, Portugal and France. The move comes as Gazprom said it would cut the flow of gas through the Nord Stream pipeline to about 20% due to what it claimed was a technical problem. Germany, which is a major recipient of gas from the pipeline, said its analysis showed there is no technical reason for a reduction. The demand reductions will focus on the electricity sector and getting industries heavily reliant on gas to switch to alternative fuels rather than cutting off supplies to homes and other critical services like hospitals. That said, the bloc agreed to improve heating and cooling efficiency so there's less need for methane gas in the first place. There are a number of other efficiency measures outlined in an International Energy Agency report released earlier this year that could further reduce demand, including letting people work from home and an all-out effort to install tech like heat pumps that heat and cool using electricity rather than methane gas. The decision to cut the use of gas comes after Europe experienced a blistering heat wave. Many of the solutions that would cut dependence on gas could also pay dividends as the climate continues to heat up. Heat pumps, for example, can be much more efficient than window air conditioning units. Improving insulation and using building materials like concrete that's carbon negative can keep homes and offices cool in summer and warm in winter as well, further reducing energy demands. Turning one of the biggest economies on earth on a dime to cut reliance on the fossil fuels that have powered it for more than a century is no small task, of course. But with both the looming gas shortage in the coming months and what the climate crisis holds in the present and coming decades, there's never been a better time for countries to start that pivot. The OCC, which regulates all national banks and federal savings associations, published a solicitation on Monday for research into the impact of financial technology entities and nonbanks on banking and the markets for lending, deposit-taking and payment services. The office is especially interested in exploring the challenges that fintechs are presenting to community banks, according to the solicitation. Other categories of interest include market and operational risks associated with blockchain, decentralized finance, and cryptocurrencies, and entry by fintech and non-bank entities and fair access to financial services. The OCC has oversight over how chartered banks use technology and has extended its oversight to fintechs such as Vero and Sophie that have national banking charters. The office will select papers to be presented to OCC staff in November. Submissions are due by August 21. The firms, both run by crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried, announced the plan Friday.
Under the joint proposal, customers of Voyager could start a new account with FTX with an opening cash balance funded by an early distribution of their bankruptcy claims. Customers could either withdraw the cash immediately or use it to purchase digital assets through FTX. The plan would require approval from the bankruptcy court overseeing Voyager's case. It would be optional for customers, the firms said, as some may wish to instead pursue their claim through the courts. Because crypto deposits lack the regulatory protections of traditional banks and brokerages, customer assets held by Voyager could be considered part of the company's bankruptcy estate, with those customers given a low priority to recover them as unsecured creditors. Voyager's customers did not choose to be bankruptcy investors holding unsecured claims, Bankman Fried said. The goal of our joint proposal is to help establish a better way to resolve an insolvent crypto business, a way that allows customers to obtain early liquidity and reclaim a portion of their assets without forcing them to speculate on bankruptcy outcomes and take one-sided risks. In a letter to Voyager's attorney posted online Friday, FTX and Alameda described the plan as requiring a two-pronged transaction. Alameda will purchase all Voyager digital assets and digital asset loans other than the loans to 3 Arrows Capital, 3AC, discussed below, in immediately available cash at fair market value. Alameda would pay the cash value of Voyager's digital assets into escrow, and FTX, or an applicable subsidiary thereof, will offer those Voyager customers who onboard with FTX the ability to receive their share of that cash in an account at FTX. Customers could withdraw their cash without gates or lockups or, if they choose, reinvest it in digital assets of their choice. FTX would waive the first month of trading fees for Voyager customers who wish to purchase digital assets rather than withdraw their cash. Alameda would also write off a $75 million loan claim. The firm would not purchase any claims related to the collapsed hedge fund Three Arrows Capital, describing the ongoing Chapter 11 proceeding as the best place to pursue recoveries relating to Voyager's loan to 3AC. Some customers have dollar balances held in accounts on Voyager's behalf at Metropolitan Commercial Bank. We are open to including or excluding these accounts from the transaction, as best for customers, the FTX letter said. FTX hopes to close the transaction by mid-August, it said. The comments on the photo, which have since been closed, called out Jenner, not only for her display of excessive wealth, but also the climate damage of private jet use. The firestorm was bolstered by the findings of Twitter account at CelebJets, which automatically tracks the movements of celebrity planes. The account revealed that Jenner routinely uses her private jet for trips that are under 15 minutes. She's not alone, either. The account has also shown that celebrities including Floyd Mayweather, Kenny Chesney and Drake are members of the Super Short Flight Club. The public outrage over the carbon emissions of the super-rich has served as a case study for how new technology and publicly available data can be used for climate accountability. Jack Sweeney, the 19-year-old creator of at Celeb Jets and many other automated jet tracking accounts, including the now infamous at Elon Jet, is pleased that his work has had an impact. Hopefully it makes people be more careful with their flights or, think more about traveling less or being more efficient, Sweeney told Protocol. While his accounts initially used available FAA information to track the departures, intended flight paths and landings of planes Sweeney thought were interesting, in May he adapted the trackers to include fuel use and carbon emissions as well. The estimates are based on the type of plane and how much fuel per hour it burns. He doesn't have every plane model in there yet, but he's planning to add more. There are already companies looking to seize upon the opportunity that at Celeb Jets has opened up.
Sweeney said at least one carbon offset company has reached out about using the trackers to integrate offset payments into celebrity jet travel. This is a happy development for Sweeney, who pointed out that Bill Gates is already offsetting his private jet travel, and if he can do it, others can, too. If more and more people do it, then it should help, he said. It remains to be seen if the pressure will pay dividends for the climate. Jet travel is notoriously hard to decarbonize, and offsets come with all sorts of problems from both climate and land rights perspectives. The scrutiny brought by Sweeney's trackers has rattled at least some private jet travelers, though they may be taking away the wrong message. Musk reached out to Sweeney personally last fall asking him to take down the popular at Elon Jet account, offering him $5,000 to do so. That's not exactly a solution that would benefit the climate, though. While Jenner has yet to slide into Sweeney's DMs, he said both billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban and sales mogul Grant Cardone have done so in recent months. Sweeney's father works in the airline industry, and Sweeney has been tracking flights since childhood. But he might not be stopping at watching the rich take to the skies. Sweeney got access to data from Marine Traffic, a ship tracking intelligence company, a few months ago. Though he hasn't yet done anything with it, others are already using similar data to track some billionaires' yachts, including the one owned by Washington Commander's owner Dan Snyder. Using data and technology to reveal private jet and yacht travel does more than create a social media ruckus. It highlights one of the key injustices of climate change. Rich people are responsible for a disproportionate sum of carbon pollution. Research shows that a single flight across the U.S. in a Gulfstream 4 private jet, a particularly popular model, emits twice the amount of carbon dioxide that the average American does in an entire year. A Bloomberg analysis published earlier this year also revealed that the top 1% of the world's highest earners emit a staggering 70 times more carbon dioxide than the bottom 50% combined. These dynamics often play out as background noise, but trackers like Sweeney's are ensuring they're a bigger part of the conversation about how the world should reduce emissions. Correction, this story has been updated to correct the spelling of the Washington commander's name. This story was updated July 22, 2022. The SEC charged Ashan Wahi and his brother, Nikhil Wahi, and friend Samir Rahmani in federal district court in Seattle. Ashan Wahi, who worked on Coinbase's announcements of newly listed crypto tokens, allegedly passed information about the listings to his brother and Rahmani, who purchased at least 25 crypto assets from June 2021 to April 2022. The SEC in its release alleged that at least nine of the 25 assets were securities, but did not indicate which ones it considered securities. Those designations will likely be of intense interest to the industry, since the SEC has not publicly identified many tokens that it considers securities and which are hence subject to strict regulation by the Commission. Coinbase's listings of tokens have attracted considerable interest, because a listing on the crypto exchange usually draws in more trading activity and liquidity. Prices often rise after a listing, either because of the increased liquidity, speculative betting or a combination of both. Some parties scoured Coinbase activity and documents to glean insights into tokens it might list. The three earned more than $1.1 million through the benefits of the inside information, the SEC alleges. The Seattle federal complaint charges the three with anti-fraud violations of securities laws, and another coordinated complaint in the Southern District of New York includes criminal charges against them. In April, Coinbase announced it would post a list of tokens that it was considering listing to increase transparency. Coinbase said its changes would improve information symmetry.
The U.S. automaker said on Thursday that it will have enough battery supplies to bring 600,000 EVs to market per year by the end of 2023. That would get the company on the way toward meeting its goal of building 2 million EVs annually by late 2026. The company said it has reached a major agreement with the Chinese company Contemporary Amperex Technology Company Limited, which is the world's largest battery pack supplier. Ford will also buy from LG Energy Solutions and up its buy from its existing partner SK on. The company also signed a binding off-take agreement to purchase lithium from the Rhyolite Ridge Mine, a proposed open-pit lithium mine in Nevada. The project is controversial because it could potentially destroy a rare buckwheat plant that Fish and Wildlife Service has proposed listing as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. The project reflects growing tensions between conservation and local environmental damage caused by mining critical minerals versus the climate crisis and need for electrifying everything ASAP. Ford has not commented publicly on why it chose to source lithium from this project or if it plans to seek out critical minerals from other controversial locations. The expansion of Ford's battery sources also involves diversifying the types of batteries it uses. The company said it would expand the use of lithium-iron phosphate battery cells in addition to the nickel-cobalt-manganese cells it currently relies on. These LFP batteries could provide a lower-cost option for Ford's growing EV fleet. Ford's announcement is an example of just how dramatically automakers' priorities have shifted. The company's electrified versions of the Mustang and F-150 have proven popular. Ford has already sold 17,675 Mustang Mach-S and 2,296 F-150 Lightnings and demand shows no sign of slowing down given high gas prices. The ambitious EV plans of Ford and many of the industry's giants means a stable battery supply chain is a major competitive advantage. This comes as the federal government also makes investments in the domestic battery supply chain in a bid to avoid reliance on China as the U.S. transitions to EVs. In all the talk of Ford's push to secure its electric future, the company did not mention a recent report from Bloomberg that the company is anticipating layoffs, to the tune of up to 8,000 employees. Many of those layoffs are expected in the recently created Ford Blue unit tasked with keeping its legacy internal combustion business going. One medical CEO Amir Dan Rubin said in a statement that the deal represents an opportunity to merge Amazon's customer obsession with one medical's healthcare technology and expertise. Rubin will remain CEO upon completion of the deal, with Amazon acquiring the company for $18 per share in an all-cash transaction. The deal is subject to approval by federal antitrust regulators and requires approval by One Medical shareholders. One Medical, owned by parent company One Life Healthcare, was founded in 2007 in San Francisco. The boutique primary care company now has 188 medical offices in 25 markets and has more than 8,500 enterprise clients across the country, according to its latest quarterly results. It has a direct-to-consumer, membership-based model and has made a big push into telehealth since the beginning of the pandemic. The company went public in 2020. Amazon has delved deeper into the healthcare space in recent years, growing its brick-and-mortar healthcare clinic presence and expanding its telehealth service, Amazon Care. It also bought online pharmacy company PillPack in 2018. Haven, Amazon's previous venture with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan to disrupt employee healthcare, fell apart in 2021 after three years. The move to buy One Medical signals Amazon's ambition to dive into broader primary care. 
CEO Colin Walsh wrote in a blog post Tuesday that the company must make some difficult decisions to ensure that Vero has sufficient capital to execute on our strategy and path to profitability. The cuts represent a little less than 10% of the company's staff, according to headcount estimates on LinkedIn. Vero, which provides online checking and saving accounts along with other services, was the first consumer neobank to secure a national banking license with the Office of the Controller of the Currency. After the fintech sector saw record investment totals in 2021, the appetite from venture capitalists to bet on fintech firms has cooled considerably this year. Vero joins a list of fintechs to conduct layoffs in recent months that includes Klarna, Bolt and Robinhood. Vero in September raised a $510 million Series E round at a $2.5 billion valuation. First quarter filings with banking regulators showed Vero was burning through its capital quickly and risked running out of money by the end of the year, as first detailed in the Fintech Business Weekly newsletter. Walsh told Banking Dive that, we remain very well capitalized and have sufficient capital to reach profitability, without having to raise additional capital. The company, founded seven years ago, is establishing a new business unit called Vero Tech, according to Walsh's announcement. The department will bring together the technology, design, data and product functions under a single umbrella to increase speed and reduce costs, Walsh said. The company, through a spokesperson, declined to share further detail on what jobs are being cut through the layoffs. The company posted a blog post titled Minecraft and NFTs and acknowledged that some creators and companies have begun launching NFT projects associated with Minecraft World Files and Skin Packs. The post also suggested Minecraft creators may use the game as a platform to create and sell collectible NFTs that players could earn through activities performed on a Minecraft server or as a reward for activities in the real world. To ensure that Minecraft players have a safe and inclusive experience, blockchain technologies are not permitted to be integrated inside our Minecraft client and server applications nor may they be utilized to create NFTs associated with any in-game content, including worlds, skins, persona items, or other mods, Mojang wrote in the post. We will also be paying close attention to how blockchain technology evolves over time to ensure that the above principles are withheld and determine whether it will allow for more secure experiences or other practical and inclusive applications in gaming, the company added. However, we have no plans of implementing blockchain technology into Minecraft right now. The traditional game industry has begun to distance itself from NFTs over the past few months following backlash from players and a crashing crypto market. Sony last week said it would be launching a digital collectibles feature as part of a new PlayStation Rewards program, but clarified emphatically that its collectibles were, definitely not NFTs. Ubisoft, which became the first major game publisher to experiment with NFTs last fall, shut down its experiment after four months. Last October, Steam Marketplace owner Valve said it would not permit any games using blockchain or NFT technology, though Fortnite creator Epic Games recently opened the door to such products on its PC game store. Microsoft has not issued a strong opinion on the subject as it relates to its library of gaming properties before now. But Xbox chief and Microsoft gaming CEO Phil Spencer told Protocol last year he was leery of the near-term kind of hysteria around NFTs and the potential for scams, fraud and the pyramid scheme nature of the crypto market leading to consumers losing vast sums of real money very quickly. Spencer separately told Axios last fall that NFTs had the potential to be exploitative and that the market contained a lot of things that probably are not things you want to have in your store. 
Mojang's blog post expresses similar sentiments. Each of these uses of NFTs and other blockchain technologies creates digital ownership based on scarcity and exclusion, which does not align with Minecraft values of creative inclusion and playing together, the company wrote. NFTs are not inclusive of all our community and create a scenario of the haves and the have-nots. The speculative pricing and investment mentality around NFTs takes the focus away from playing the game and encourages profiteering, which we think is inconsistent with the long-term joy and success of our players. The studio said it was also worried about fraud and that third-party NFT technology could result in a loss of assets for consumers, situations that may end up costing players who buy them. The USPS is in the midst of a multi-year process to turn over its fleet of aging and fire-prone delivery vehicles. Its initial order of 50,000 next-generation delivery vehicles from Oshkosh Defense included just 10,019 EVs, with the rest being gas-powered. But the agency told Reuters that it would be boosting its total EV purchase to 25,000 delivery vehicles. Overall, at least 40% of USPS's 84,500 vehicles purchased in the coming years will be EVs, by the agency's estimate. This is the latest development in the Postal Service's ongoing EV drama that's involved Congress, the Environmental Protection Agency, states and nonprofits all hammering the agency over its decision to buy mostly gas-powered vehicles. In April, the House Oversight and Reform Committee grilled the agency about its failure to electrify its fleet. Despite the pressure then, the agency refused to budge on its plan to purchase tens of thousands of new gas-powered vehicles. Later that month, a group of 16 states and some environmental groups sued USPS for not electrifying its fleet faster. The agency has cited the cost, its own financial situation and the challenges of using EVs in rural areas as reasons for its gas-powered purchase plan. But its own inspector general refuted some of those issues in testimony before the Oversight and Reform Committee in April. EVs are also generally more cost-effective for a variety of reasons, but particularly now with surging gas prices. For context, USPS's existing fleet of 217,000 aging trucks is the largest share of the federal government's civilian vehicle fleet. The Biden administration has said it wants to throw the weight of the government behind addressing the climate crisis, including transitioning the entire federal fleet of vehicles to zero emissions models by 2027. That would help bring EV costs down for the average car buyer, speeding up the transition to electrified transit in the U.S. Transportation is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the country. The USPS is an independent agency, though, and is run by Trump holdover Louis DeJoy. The financial constraints on the agency are also real, thanks to a 2006 law, and USPS has said it needs more money from Congress to go fully electric. Wednesday's news that it's increasing its purchase of EVs, though, is a sign that the public pressure could be changing its calculus a bit. Our goal is to find an easy-to-use paid sharing offering that we believe works for our members and our business that we can roll out in 2023, the company wrote. The letter also states that Netflix is aiming to launch an ad-supported tier, around the early part of 2023. Netflix first announced plans to monetize shared accounts and launch a cheaper, ad-supported tier in April. The company struck a deal with Microsoft to sell and power its ads last week. Netflix executives have said in the past there were an estimated 100 million households who participated in account sharing. The company had already begun a test asking people to pay more for the ability to share their accounts in Chile, Costa Rica and Peru. 
On Monday, the company announced a separate test with a slightly different approach. Starting in August, Netflix will ask members in Argentina, the Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras to pay more if they want to stream to more than one home. We're encouraged by our early learnings and ability to convert consumers to paid sharing in Latin America, the company said Tuesday. Netflix also announced Tuesday that it had lost another 0.97 million subscribers in Q2. The company expects to add 1 million subscribers in Q3, compared to 4.38 million added subscribers in Q3 of 2021. Disclosure. Protocol is owned by Axel Springer, whose chairman and chief executive officer, Matthias Doffner, is on the board of Netflix. According to Google Cloud's Service Health page, one of its London buildings hosting cloud services for one of its Western Europe regions experienced a cooling-related failure, starting Tuesday morning. The company powered down services in part of that region to fix the issue. Meanwhile, Oracle is having similar issues. Its service health page said it's working to repair the cooling system in its London data center and has powered down some of its services to to prevent uncontrolled hardware failures. Oracle said it expects service to be restored today. As the operating temperatures approach workable levels, some services may start to see recovery, Oracle's service page said. Though major data centers often have thousands of gallons of water at their disposal for cooling, they're not immune to heat waves. Prior to Tuesday's outages, an AWS data center in London went out July 10 in what the company called a thermal event. Some data center operators are even resorting to hosing down their roof-mounted AC units with water to keep working. Data centers are facing issues, but so, too, are everyday people. The heat wave currently roasting the EU and UK is being made worse by climate change, and the effects have been relentless. Hundreds died in Spain and Portugal over the weekend amid the intense heat that topped out at 116.6 degrees Fahrenheit 47 degrees Celsius and wildfires burning across the countryside. Nuclear power plants were also forced to operate at reduced capacity in France due to overheating river water normally used for cooling. The epicenter of heat has since moved to the UK to start the week, where the nation saw its first ever 40 degrees Celsius 104 degree Fahrenheit temperature reading and has seen fires rage near London. Just 5% of homes in the UK have air conditioning installed. There are a number of high and low-tech solutions that could help beat the heat, a task that will only become more important as climate change increases the intensity and frequency of freakishly hot weather. This post has been updated with additional context.